So Romans chapter 2, I'll read verses 17 through 24. The word of the Lord. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The word of the Lord. Now, one of the commentators I was reading said they have found ancient documents and things around this time where in different Jewish writings that these things which Paul says at the beginning that they're boasting in was things that they were boasting in. You can find these things in writing where they're saying that these are the things that, that, that we boast in. Um, these things are not bad things. These are, we're going to see things that in and of themselves, without faith, can become very detrimental to, to anyone's faith. And so Paul is really reiterating what he said in Romans 2.13, where he says, It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified or declared righteous. And here he's fleshing this out. It's not just the hearers, not just the possessors, not just those who sit under, but those, if you're going to have your trust in the law, it is the doers of the law who will be declared righteous before God. And what Paul has been preaching, and what we see in Romans 1, again, verse 16 and 17, a very pivotal verse as Paul is setting up his arguments moving forward, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So again, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to Everyone who believes. Not anything else. The gospel. Power of God for salvation. Not good moral behavior. Paul has made the case and continues to make the case that we are all morally condemned before our holy God. Compared to the holiness of God which is our standard, we are utterly bankrupt. And Paul will go on to say in Romans 3.10 that there is no one righteous, no, not one, no one who is righteous. And he has already judged the man who judges others. He says, you who judged others are guilty of the same things. And he says, when you judge others, you're acknowledging that there is a moral standard. And even this further condemns you because you know there is a right and you know there is a wrong. And even this will further condemn you because one, you don't even live up to your own standards. 
And two, your standards are not even high enough or accurate at all. And now, what about the Jew? He's already said the gospel is the power of salvation for the Jew as well. And he even says, first, but also for the Gentile. But the unsaved Jew has a problem. He's very religious. And the Gentile, the non-Jews, may think, man, if even the Jews aren't considered righteous before God, then what hope do we have? How could we ever be considered righteous before God? And Paul's answer is the same to everyone. Only the gospel has the power to save. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The righteous shall live by faith. But faith in what? His religion? Because the Jew had faith in God. Rules. The Jew had faith in God covenant. The Jews had faith. Again, we're talking about the non-believing converted Jew. They're believing in something. The world believes in something. Muslims believe in something. Jehovah's Witnesses believe in something. Liberal Christians believe in something. Pagan people believe in something. The Jews are believing in something from God. And they're following it strictly. Therefore, they must be saved. And Paul says, we'll have none of that. The gospel, Jesus Christ, that's it. There's none who are righteous, no, not one. Get rid of that thinking. For the Jew, it's very difficult. Think of the Christian, because this is where we're going to make the transition to say, what about the Christian? Because the Jews, in 17 and 18 right here, we see they had a very special status. Let me look at it again. In 17, you call yourself a Jew. What does that mean? That means you are claiming the covenantal status of God's chosen people. They used to be called Israelites. Why are they not called Israelites anymore? What's up with that? Well, it's because they were carried off into captivity. Well, first of all, they couldn't get along with each other, so they had a church split. They had the, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom took off, and you know, the northern kingdom set up their own worship, and the southern kingdom um, still had the temple. And then the northern, all the northern kings were all evil, the Bible says, and none of them did what was right in the eyes of God. They all were carried off. That was the first. All the northern kingdoms, were, the northern tribes were carried off into captivity first. Southern kingdom had the, the prophet saying, same's going to happen to you. Worship God. Believe in God. And they were saying, we've got the temple. The temple, the temple, the temple. We've got the temple. What are you talking about? God's not going to, God won't judge us. We're the, we're the real ones. We're the southern kingdom. We're of Judah. They get carried off. Gone. Because they did not have faith in God. They had the stuff, they had the, the things, but they didn't have the substance that, that it was meant. We have the Lord's Supper, we have baptism, we have all these things, but it's the faith underneath and through and what these things are representing, signing and sealing. And they didn't have it, they didn't have the faith. They just had confidence in themselves and who they were. And they were carried off. And they came back, eventually. Ezra and Nehemiah is about the return, the building, rebuilding of the kingdom, rebuilding of the walls. But it was only the southern kingdom that came back, and they were only living in Judah. So now they're no longer called the whole kingdom of Israelites. They begin to be called 
people living in Judah. They begin to be called Jews. So even the name Jew should remind these people. It could do two things. One, it could say, yep, at least we weren't as bad as the northern kingdom. We lasted longer, and we're back. Or they can say, remember the judgment that came upon us because of our lack of faith. Our brothers, we split. They were taken away. Our fathers were taken away. We are back. Let us cling to the word of the Lord. But over time, again, as the Messiah comes as promised, many of them are converted, but many continue just to cling to their religious system. And the same can be said of many a church-going Christian in our day. And so we're going to go through each of these things, reliance on law, boasting in God, knowing his will, approving what's excellent, uh, being an instructor of the law. And since you're an instructor, are you sure you yourself are blind to the guide, a light to those in darkness, an instructor, the foolish teacher of children, having in law the embodiment, knowledge and truth. And so you know, these are all things that the church would say, we as the church now have this. And so Paul could easily look at us and say, okay, you who call yourself a Christian. And so that's how we should also look at this. And so the question is, do you call yourself a Christian? Have you been baptized into the covenant? Have you um, been participating in the covenant meal of God's people? of which Christians are to be partakers by his command, but also only believing Christians are to partake by his command. So yes, we call ourselves God's chosen people. And so that's your name. And then secondly, do you rely on the law? Now it's interesting for a Christian because we know you're not supposed to. I mean, I don't care what kind of church you're in. Well, okay. You kind of know, you can't, you, at least you're not supposed to say that out loud because that makes you a legalist. And I'm sure there are some churches who think that that's how you're saved is, I mean, but even them, they can't, I don't even know how they could even just come right out and say it. It just has to kind of be the understood underneath real belief of some people in some churches. But are you relying on the on the law, but for the person who's calling himself or herself a Christian, for the person that's, you know, it's just, there's calling themselves that, maybe even in their own minds, they're calling themselves, they're more likely to say they're relying on grace. They have this, this freedom to do as they like. And again, you might not come right out and say it, but then at different times you may. It's like, I believe in the grace of God. I'm trusting in the grace of God. I have this freedom. But this freedom for the person calling himself a Christian is usually it's not enough because they're concerned with the opinion of others. I mean, if you're not concerned what God thinks, then you have to be concerned with something. And so people like this are concerned with the opinion of others, even while they may say, I don't care what anyone thinks. They do. It's the people who will say that they have tough skin or usually the ones with the thinnest skin. And so just because somebody says, I don't care what anybody thinks, well, for the person who just calls themselves, why are they doing it? Why are they even calling themselves a Christian if they don't really believe it? And thankfully, we're living in a day when many people don't just call themselves Christian because of business. 
They don't just call themselves Christian because it's expected culturally. I mean, as the culture gets a little darker and as people look at you a little bit stranger, um, as maybe it even becomes more dangerous in different places to proclaim the name of Christ and to go and worship, then um, yeah, it's, it, it's better in some ways because you don't get all the people who are just showing up just to show up. Doesn't mean they don't still show up. It just means it's not as... I mean, it used to be everybody. I remember I met my first atheist in college. And you can't tell me everybody I grew up with was a Christian, but nobody would ever come right out and say, I, I'm a, am an atheist. It was like, I'm not sure what that is, but I know it's bad. You can't be an atheist. But when we are worried about outward appearances, or you say you're not, but you're just calling yourself a Christian, and you just are trusting in grace, you say, it causes outward observance of the law a look at me. A, I am a good Christian. And so secondly, it says they boast in God. So the person calling himself a Christian might even say with Paul, I boast in Christ. I boast in the cross of Christ. And yet have no real idea what is meant by anything other beyond the external words. Jesus this, or Christ that, or amen here, and amen hallelujah there. But it's all a game. Something to make them feel good about themselves. To go, to look, to be able to look in the eyes of others and have them say, that's a good guy, that's a good Christian, I have no doubt about that. Or even to gain control over other people. The what better place to exert power and authority over other people than the church? Especially if you're powerless in other areas of your life, but especially if you're powerful in other areas of your life. I mean, it's just a place where powerful people are drawn to in order to have more control over other people because it's to control people in the name of God is a very powerful thing. And a lot of people are just drawn to it. Rightly, Jesus calls these people whitewashed tombs and being full of dead men's bones. For the boast, their boast in God is really a boasting in themselves. Look at me. Listen to what I believe. How good I am with my boasting in Christ. For Paul writes in Galatians 6.14, Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. You see, Paul had experienced salvation. Paul had experienced the living and true God. Paul's not just saying he knew what it was like to do the law. He knew what it was like to depend on the law. He knew what it was like to say, look at me, a Pharisee. I am a Jew of Jews. I'm the tribe of Benjamin. I have all the credentials. And with that power, people would bow down to you in public. And now he says, I call all of that rubbish and I am the chief of sinners. And, 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 and you can hear when he 
He even begins to talk about it, the shame that he has over it. And he says, but I look forward to the cross of Christ. I'm focusing on Christ. I look forward to the upward call of Christ Jesus, my Lord. So that when he begins to fall and feel and think about his past as he's dipping further and further, even as he thinks about his life now as he sees how far short he falls, he doesn't sit there and start go, hey, but look at me, I'm doing pretty good. I mean, that's a lot of, of modern um, therapy or counseling and things like this outside of the Lord is like you, you, you had no choice but to be like this. You, you, you've got to forgive yourself. You, you've got to seek justification. But in Christ, there's, there's outward justification. There's, there's actual objective forgiveness from God. So Paul's able to cling to that. But a person who doesn't really have faith in that, they can't do that. So psychologically, emotionally, they have to do something else. And so what they're doing is what Paul is saying. Look and see if you're doing this because it can keep you from the kingdom. Paul knew that Christ had died for him and that Paul had died in Christ so that Paul would say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So, oh, believer, this would be our cry. That's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And this is our hope. Faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ for us. And you have to ask yourself, do you know that Christ died for you? Do you know that? And you can hear it, and you can sit under it, and nod your head yes. Somebody could even shout up and say amen, fall out on the floor, shaking, and not get it. More than this, he was raised from the dead for our justification, for us to be able to say we are raised with him. By the power of the Holy Spirit. The same power that is at work within you, believer. Not you who call yourself a Christian, but the believer. Holy Spirit power dwelling within you. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same power at work in you. That's amazing. That's amazing. When we pray the prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. As we say, you must love the Lord your God. And we say when we see that fruit of the Spirit, the first thing is love. Love is not something we do to, to promote faith. Love isn't something that we do to say, come save me because I'm loving you. Please, please, I love you. I love you. Help me love you. It is no, it is a fruit of the Spirit working within a person. A person without the Holy Spirit, a person not born again, does not have love for God does not, cannot have love for God, is a fruit of the Spirit. Only a born-again believer has the Holy Spirit. That's it. Doesn't mean a lot of people don't go around saying they love God. Doesn't mean a lot of people go around thinking they love God. This presents a problem. But Paul is saying, it's all right, I got you. We're going to point this out. We're not going to allow people to sit in this and think, I've got it. Because he's saying to the Jew, and remember how, this is, you know, you're just growing up culturally, thinking about Christ. This is centuries of being a Jew. And Paul's saying, Mm-mm. only Jesus Christ. But it's just as bad for the person who, you know, claiming the name of Christ and denying the power. So what is the person simply calling herself a Christian? And this is where 
those even coming to the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table. We have to put ourselves in the situation with the apostles, with Jesus, at the Last Supper, at the Lord's table, when he had gathered his disciples around, and he's saying, this is my body, this is my blood, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, and as he's beginning to do that, he looks around, and he says, this night, one of y'all are going to betray me. And they didn't go, like Peter does later, not me. They may all do it, but not me. At that time, they all go, are you talking about me? Is it me? At that moment, they had the right thought. Peter, thinking, I would never do it, but I hear what you're saying. (laughs) Are you talking about me? And that's where we have to put ourselves right now. Is he talking about you? Is he talking about me? And if you're not willing think about that for a minute, then Houston, we have a problem. Verse 18 says, you claim to know his will. God says this, God says do this, God says don't do that, the Bible says this, the Bible says that. So we have that. Fifth, it says, you, you approve what is excellent. We do that. See what the Bible says, what's good. You know, you know the truth. You can discern good from evil using his word. You have the Ten Commandments, all these things. Six, because you are instructed by the law, and we're instructed. Um, the law can have a word that just means teaching. and um, can be moral law. It can be different things. But it says, you know, but you're instructed by the Bible. You have the Bible. You have a church. You have podcasts. You have all these things. Uh, lots of, lots of instruction. And here's where preachers and teachers and people who are really into theology had to be very especially careful of having only an intellectual interest in the Bible and theology. Because there's lots of books that are written on deep, deep theological subjects. There are commentaries written on the entire Bible by men who acknowledge they don't even believe it. But it's a fascinating subject. Hans Konzelman, is that the guy's name? He's a German, a lot of German. For a long time, the leading intellectuals in Christianity were non-believing people. And it wasn't until 70s, 80s, it begins to be writings of reformed men and women who begin to say, no, the Bible is true. (laughs) These things are not right. And they begin to put their intellect, join with their faith, which has a love for God and understanding of who it is we love, why we love this person, and digging into the Scriptures and saying, look at that truth. Look at the real thing. Look at what's here. And so we thank God that God has taken us away from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I read much about him. He's rebelling against this German liberalism that was taking hold. Hitler using the writings of of even uh, Martin Luther um, in his later years, to, to speak against the Jews, um, having churches in Germany that weren't allowed to even read the Old Testament because it was Jewish. So you don't know how far these things can go, but for the believer, for the person who's not just has an intellectual, I mean, theology is fun for some people. You know? I like it. <laughs> I enjoyed going to seminary. I enjoyed every every minute of it. But I would come home and Amy would be like, well, you, you're going to, it's like you're going to church all day long. And I'm stuck here with the kids. <laughs> I'm like, 
Yeah, it is. That's what seminary is kind of like, like super church. It was, just, it was just great. But you also have people that go and they lose their faith because they're being taught by people who have no faith. So be in prayer for seminaries. But we have to be careful ourselves that we have more than just an intellectual interest in the Bible and theology. It's bad as having no intellectual interest in it. And then seventh, it says, you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light in darkness, having the embodiment of truth and knowledge. And we know as believers, we do have this. We, we, it is the substance of truth and knowledge. That's what the Bible is. But without faith, the light in you is darkness. It, without faith, even the law, even the good things of God, the, the gospel itself, without faith, it will be twisted by the world, the flesh, and Satan to your demise and to the sorrow of everyone around you. And how bad for a pastor that that's his darkness is light. How bad for a church whose pastor is faithless. And the light within you is darkness, then how great is that darkness? And he goes on to show the hypocrisy of how it works in verses 21 through 23. He just says, You then who teach others to steal, do you not steal yourself? Are you preaching against stealing? Do you steal? And the, and the assumed answer in Greek to these things are, are yes, you do. You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law? Are you saying, this is what you're doing? You're being a hypocrite. You're saying one thing, you're doing another. And at some level, we all do it. We all do it. You might even say to your children, do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> not what Paul says. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. So you have to be very careful of that. And then worst of all, verse 24, it's written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The non-believing world, they're blaspheming God. They are. I'm saying terrible things about God because they look at you and they're like, if that's what God like, if that is what God is like, then I want nothing of him. Now, you can be a true believer and carry the light and the world look at you and say, if that's what God is like, I want nothing of him. And you're actually in their right because they don't love God. But they may also look at the things we do. I mean, there is plenty. And notice the world doesn't do podcasts on a church that has just been faithful and godly for centuries. You're not going to have that. You know, you're going to get Mars Hill podcast. world loves that. That gets the hits. That gets you going. Um, people who speak badly against the church. A lot of people, a lot of us do that. Be careful. Because you may be talking about branch of the church. You may be talking about people who are calling themselves church or not, but we're talking about the bride of Christ. Be very careful speaking against the bride of Christ. Jesus came and died for the church. A lot of the world doesn't understand the difference between the visible and invisible church. The world doesn't understand the difference between liberal churches and conservative churches or bad, evil churches and synagogues of Satan and churches who are bride of Christ trying to do the best they can living in the world of righteousness. But what they'll cling to is every post, every statement, every news story, every negative bit of information that there is about the church. Don't cover it. Don't hide it. <laughs> but for God's sake, glory in it. The goodness of God and his people in the church. At least let people know that you love the church in spite of what man does, in spite of some churches 
in spite of what may happen in this church. We would pray that there were sin, terrible thing committed here. We find out, you know, there's been long ongoing abuse or whatever like that. These things come to light. We would pray that we would deal with it emphatically and immediately. Not cover it up because we're worried what man thinks. We're worried about a watching world. We need to be worried about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So if we're going to be guides to the blind, if you're both blind, you're going to both fall in a ditch. So we need to make sure that we indeed are not the light. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power is from God and not from us. But there's a treasure within us. We need to make sure we're proclaiming the truths of this treasure. And we must recognize the fact that we can cause God to be blasphemed. We have to desire that we as individuals and we as a church would cause God to be elevated, for God to be glorified. He's quoting from Isaiah 52. So I'd like you to turn to, to Isaiah, to find it back there. It's after, find Psalms, and then um, Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. But the next big book that you'll find is Isaiah. If you get to Jeremiah, just go back a little bit, so you'll find Isaiah 52 which is where Paul is quoting. And, and so in the Jewish mind, and don't forget this either, Paul also is a Jew. Paul's not just some guy, some Christian guy out there who's picking on the Jews. He's like, you call yourself a Jew, I'm a Jew. He's saying, if you're really a Jew, you believe in Jesus Christ. If you're really a Jew, you'd believe these things. So uh, he's saying you had to be you know, a Christian, which was a name that was given to believers of Jesus Christ later. Um, kind of as a, to slam them, but we, we picked up on it and said, hey, that's pretty much what we want to be called. So if you start, because there's a good Jew, what Paul would do, and he's thinking of this verse. He doesn't just look, go to his refrigerator and see this verse out of context. He knows the context of this verse, and it's about the salvation of the Jewish people. So let's start, just read with me uh, Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 1. And try, let's do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let, let's pray. Father God, um, we need to be intellectual. We need to be logical. We read this word in its historical context. We read it within its grammatical context, the historico-grammatical context. We do this. We know that this was written to an original reading audience, but it's also inspired by your spirit for your church today. Your, your word tells us this. So we pray that you would enable us to hear this word from you to us, and it would go to the very depths of our being. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Awake, awake. Put on your strength, O Zion. That's the church. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. That's the church. For there shall be, there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated in Jerusalem. Loose the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says Yahweh, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says Yahweh Elohim, my people went down at the first to Egypt to sojourn there and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now, therefore, what I hear, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually my name is despised. Now, NAS and King James Bible all use the word blasphemed there, as is also picked up by Paul. My name is blasphemed. Therefore, my people shall know my name. 
Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak to them. Here I am. That's the very next verse that Paul doesn't read, that the good Jewish person would say. Maybe he'll go, I need to get that Isaiah scroll out and look it up. Or I remember what happens next. I know the context. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news and publishes peace and brings good news. And what is the power of God for salvation? The good news of Jesus Christ who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns, the voice of your watchmen. They lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people, has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. And you shall not go out in haste. And you shall not go in flight, for Yahweh will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. So he's before you, he's behind you. This is the church, this is our promise. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Now he's prophesying the coming of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted, as many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. Remember, it's talking of Jesus Christ. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many 
and makes intercession for the transgressor. We must see ourselves as the transgressors. We must see ourselves as the transgressors, not as people for whom Christ has died and therefore we've got it made and we don't have to worry about anything anymore. I don't have to go to church. I don't have to read the Bible. I don't have to do nothing. I got it made. I can get away with anything. I can do what I want to. I use grace as a thinly veiled excuse for sin. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. I boast in Christ. I boast in the gospel. You're a transgressor. There's a Puritan saying, I always say it was John Owen, but I'm not sure. He says, all that I have contributed to my salvation, the only thing that I have contributed to my salvation is my need for it. So how do you make sure that you are not the man or the woman or the kid who merely calls himself a Christian, having what Steve Lawson calls a nice little religion? But it is a most serious proposition. Am I truly in Christ? Am I a Christian? Well, there you have it. Introspection. The ability and the desire to inspect your own spiritual condition. To look inwardly at yourself. The hypocrite will have none of that. The hypocrite will say to himself, Preacher, who are you to ask me such a question? Look at yourself. You better think about yourself before you start pointing fingers at me and step on my toes. I'd be just as bad to do the same thing. Look at yourselves. You guys, are, you need to look at yourselves. I'm not ever thinking about looking inwardly myself. Introspection inspection into your own spiritual condition. Not being the person who says, of course I'm a Christian. Now stop this sermon. It's gone on quite long enough. I'm done with this lecture. Let's get on with it. But if the Holy Spirit is moving, as he has promised to do in the preaching of his word and in the working of the sacraments and in prayer, if he is moving... You, to ask the question, am I a Christian, really? Am I in Christ, truly? Good. Do you see yourself as without hope in this world, apart from the grace of Christ? Do you see yourself as hopeless and lost in this world, apart from from Christ. Do you? Do you? I'm not asking you to yell it out either. Hypocrite, yell first and loudest. Be the first to the front. Be the first on the knees. First to the glory. All this stuff. Uh Uh-uh. Don't even do it. In your own spirit, do you know that you are lost in this world without Christ, that you deserve hell and you would go to hell and you would be there forever without the grace of God in Christ Jesus? And don't nod your head. You can nod your head. I'm sorry. I'm asking too much of you. Somebody, I don't know. And And this is my point. If I'm a hypocrite, this is how I should be preaching. (laughs) But it's the gospel. And and this is one of those verses that looks right back at me and says, are you preaching it? Are you not doing it yourself? You're saying not to do this. You're saying you got to be introspective. Are you introspective? And I can say, (laughs) yeah, 
I doubt my salvation from time to time because I see the inward parts of my life. And I am very grateful that I'm a pastor because then some people let you see the depths of their depravity too. And I go, there must be hope for me. But if you don't look at yourself sometimes and go, I'm the chiefest sinner, not me the chief sinner. So it'll be you or yourself the chiefest sinners if you really don't get that. But you can get that too and still not be a believer. You can feel tremendous weight. People kill themselves over shame and guilt. It's turning to Christ, understanding the mercy of God in Christ. It's this Jesus, this God, this is reality, this beauty, the Holy Spirit coming and saying, I hear your word and I know, but you have to ask, do you see yourself as without hope in this world apart from Christ? Do you cling to the promises of God to save you who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to, to save? He promises that he will save all who call upon the name of the Lord. Do you cling to that promise? I have people who come to me from time to time and they, they don't know if they're believers. I don't know if I'm a believer. They just can't believe it because I don't know if I'm elect. I don't know if I'm chosen. It's like, well, <laughs> I'm not talking about that. I'm saying, do you trust in the promises of God in Christ? Are you trusting in his promises? Are you clinging to him? Do you hoping this is true beyond all doubt because you know you're without hope in this world apart from Christ? And they'll typically they'll say, sometimes people say, I don't know. And I'm like, well, then we're going to talk. But Yes, I get that, I get that. And it's like, then your problem is you're not trusting in the promises of God. You're looking to yourself for salvation. Don't look to yourself for salvation. Look to Christ for your salvation. Because you need to have your salvation and know that your salvation is as sure as His promises. Or you may just have for yourself a nice little religion too. But if you still doubt, if you feel your need of Him though, then repent again of your sin. Admit your fallenness. Call upon Jesus. Pray to Him to, to save or to revive or to renew, to move, to do something. But then go to His words. You come to the table. It's not a place for the hypocrite. It's not a place for the sinless person either because then you're a hypocrite too because you don't get it. So we would pray, Oh, Holy Spirit, Revive us again. Show us where we have strayed. Grip us more firmly that we might grip you more firmly. Give us a holy zeal for more of you. Give us more of you by your grace. Let us be humbled under your mighty hand and, and let us learn again to love one another as he has first loved us while we were yet sinners. For truly the love of Christ compels us and draws us to yourself and to your table. Amen. But if you've not made a public profession of faith, if you've not committed yourself as a communing member of the church, maybe you've been baptized, but you've not yet taken that step to say, I believe these things for myself. I believe these things to be true. I know I need this. Then grab me today and do not leave here again. If you've never been baptized, you've never turned to Christ, if you feel you are lost, but you don't want to be lost, let's pray, let's do this thing. Let's make sure that there is salvation, there is hope. Don't leave from here thinking, I cannot be saved, a mere sinner. Just the only people Christ saves are sinners. It's all he has to work with. I call on all of you to examine yourselves. We must all examine. We all fall short, except in Christ. So if, God forbid, you are the hypocrite, 
when you come to the table, you're eating and drinking judgment to yourself. And if you're the hypocrite, it don't matter. You're not listening to me anyway. I mean, maybe I hope nobody here, someone online, you're listening, but you don't hear. You don't get it. You're a dead man. Dead man can't hear anything. This Holy Spirit brings life and breathes life into dead men. That's what the gospel is, bringing dead people to life. If you're a believer and you look back and you say, I'm saved because I did this, I did that, I did that, and it's like, okay, I prayed a prayer, I went forward, I started going to church, okay, maybe. But you know God's the one that reached you first. God's the one that grabbed you. God's the one that saved you. God's the one that reached in. So that's what we need. We need the powerful working of God through the gospel as he's promised to do. So if there is a lack of the gospel in our land, if there's a dryness, if there's a lack of people turning to him, if there's a lack of faith, it is on us, not on him. So we pray for him to blow your spirit upon us, to to have us be gripped by the gospel, not by anything else, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. To so grip us that we drip Jesus. We drip the gospel. And people see us and they go, surely they're saved. And I can tell by the way they love one another. So as we come to the table, we have to make sure that we know that Jesus saves people. The gates of the dead shall not prevail against his word, against his spirit, against a church marching forward for him. So let's pray for salvation and renewals and restoration for a church full of gospel zeal and power. Let's pray. Father God, you are our God. You are most holy. We are yours. Without you, we are lost. We pray for your advancement upon our souls. And we pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.